Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. After her Brexit deal with the EU was resoundingly rejected by MPs last week, British Prime Minister Theresa May returned to the House of Commons on Monday with her Plan B. Most observers couldn't help noticing that the new plan looks suspiciously like Plan A. So what is different about Mrs May's new plan? And should she fail to win support for it, what are the alternatives to it that are likely to emerge as the clock ticks down to Brexit Day, March 29th? Dennis Staunton, our London editor, has the answers to those and other questions. I'll also talk to our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlowe, about the signing today, Tuesday, in Aachen by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel of a new Franco-German treaty. Is this a meaningful step towards deepening ties between the two countries seen as the engine of the European Union or a largely empty gesture by two weakened leaders? Lara will give us her assessment of that question, but it's Brexit first and Dennis Staunton is on the line from London. So, Dennis, what was new in the plan that Theresa May presented to the House of Commons on Monday? Well, not that much. Uh, What she said was that she was going to continue to meet MPs from all parties, including her own party, to try to find out what changes were going to be needed to uh, the withdrawal agreement to try to get a parliamentary majority. You remember last week it was defeated by 230 votes, the biggest defeat in parliamentary history. And so she got quite a hill to climb. And uh, so what she seems to be uh, have decided to do is to try to uh, get some changes from the backstop. First of all, to, to, to see what MPs could live with. So what kind of changes would give a majority, would produce a majority in the House of Commons. And so she's going to see what will work, what she can get a majority for. And then once she establishes what that is, she will go back to Brussels and she'd say, I need this. And then Brussels either says yes or no or maybe. And the and the reason that she's going for it in this particular way is because when she decided she was going to start uh, listening to MPs from all sides of the House uh, after the defeat, she sent David Liddington, who's her effective deputy prime minister, and a couple of her other ministers out to, uh, to check out what uh, votes from the opposition. And they found, for example, that a lot of people were in favour of a customs union. But most of the people who were in favour of a customs union on the Labour side, they wanted more than that. They wanted also to be part of the single market or maybe they wanted a second referendum. And they found then that if they were to go for a customs union, that they would lose maybe 20, maybe 40 votes uh, on the Conservative side of those who had actually already supported her deal. And so they concluded that unless Jeremy Corbyn was prepared to whip the Labour MPs in support of some solution, that that just wasn't going to be able to work. And one of the things they're very conscious of is that you don't just have to get the the vote through in terms of this meaningful vote on the deal. After that, you have to get all of this implementation legislation through. And that's quite a lot of complicated legislation. It means having to vote every night. It means going through the Lords as well as the Commons. And they just thought that unless you had the Labour leadership behind it, that this would be a very unstable coalition. Uh, because you'd have a lot of conservative Brexiteer rebels on the one hand, and then you just wouldn't be sure that your Labour allies were going to be able to uh, to withstand the onslaught they would possibly have from their own constituencies, threats to deselect them, and just uh, and generally the, the discomfort of voting day in, day out for conservative legislation. So essentially, it was the, the calculation she has made is that she has got a better chance of success by 
really appealing to her own side, if you like, of the argument and, and, and getting, if she can address the backstop issue, she'll she'll keep the Brexiteers on board and perhaps get more of the Conservative, her own MPs on board. Is, is that the calculation that's being made? Yes, I think what she thinks is that uh, as time goes on, that you're going to get more pressure on the Brexiteers to support her deal. They'll want to support her deal more. And this is partly because at the same time as she's going through this process, there are a, a number of amendments being proposed which would have the effect of ruling out a no-deal Brexit, ruling out leaving on March the 29th without a deal. And so that would mean that either you'd extend the negotiating period beyond March the 29th, or you'd find some other way of ruling it out. And what the Brexiteers would fear then is that if they don't go for Theresa May's deal, that they might have Brexit delayed or even overturned in a second referendum. And so what she's hoping is that you'll have this kind of pincer movement, that on the one hand, you'll have uh, this uh, the threat of, a, of having no Brexit, pushing some Brexiteers into her arms. And then she's hoping that she might get some concession from the European Union on the backstop, which would also encourage others, give them a kind of a ladder to climb down. And that then the DUP even might be able to accept uh, the backstop if there was some kind of modification to it, like, say, a time limit. Nevertheless, it's kind of remarkable that she's still talking about modifications to the backstop, isn't it? Given that Apart from the Polish foreign minister on, on Monday, um, there's been a united sort of uh, front from the European Union on the backstop that, that it's, it's in the withdrawal treaty, it won't change. And, and as you pointed out in your own analysis of this um, in the Irish Times today, only last week, she, she, she couldn't have been clearer. She said no backstop means no deal now and for the foreseeable future. So it's quite a change, isn't it? Well, she has just uh, dropped that uh, statement now. She just no longer says that uh, the backstop has to be part of the withdrawal agreement. And she doesn't, you know, she also, before the vote last week, she accepted that the text of the withdrawal agreement couldn't be reopened. I think part of this is that she has also decided that it's very important to keep her party together, that actually party unity is the most important thing for her at the moment. And that, uh, and so that, as you know, until such time as you get towards the end of the process and the Europeans have rejected one compromise proposal and maybe you try to get uh, you know, some kind of a slighter compromise or a more generous compromise and then the Europeans also will find themselves under pressure by the deadline and they want to get a deal done by the 29th of March. And so, for example, if you, you, you mentioned the Polish foreign minister's proposal and what he suggested was that you could have a five-year time limit on the backstop. And I have heard from senior figures in Brussels uh, before Christmas, they were floating in private notions of maybe a very long time limit, like, say, 15 years or 20 years. And many people in Brussels uh, and some in Dublin believe that the Polish foreign minister didn't necessarily come up with this idea on his own and that he they noted that he had been meeting Jeremy Hunt, the British foreign minister, uh, foreign secretary. And so they uh, they think that maybe this is an idea that uh, the British government would quite like to have in the mix, that you actually have some a, a quite substantial time limit. So if, say, the, the, the British were proposing five years, which is, of course, much too long for the DUP and for the Brexiteers. But let's say they're proposing that and the Europeans are saying 15. Well, maybe you might end up with seven 
or something. And really, if you have a backstop, which is supposed to last, you know, which lasts for seven years, uh, it's it, it's almost permanent insofar as, uh, you know, one of the you know, one of the reasons why uh, the British would argue that you can, you know, the Irish could afford to, to give them a time limit or indeed to give them a unilateral withdrawal mechanism is because Ireland, as one of the uh, 27 member states, will have a veto on any trade agreement with uh, with Britain that comes up in the next few years. And so they can quite simply make it a condition of their approval that you actually, that they would have to accept or continue in the backstop or something like it. So I think that you may find that although everybody did uh, publicly dismiss this idea of a five-year time limit, they might come back and say, maybe it's a runner. Okay, and Dennis, just to look at some of the other potential scenarios that are emerging here with MPs on both sides of the House, of the House of Commons are starting to come forward with with amendments designed to give Parliament more control over the Brexit process. What kind of options are beginning to emerge? Well, there are a few amendments. There's one which Jeremy Corbyn uh, proposed last night. He tabled that last night, and that would uh, it calls on the government to give uh, MPs a vote on his proposal, which is uh, a customs union and better protection for workers' rights and environmental rights, and uh, and a close relationship with the single market, and then also uh, to be given a vote on a second referendum. Now, this is unlikely to get through because the Conservative. Uh, pro-EU rebels are not supporting it. And for any amendment to get through, you really need the opposition parties backing it, plus a substantial number of conservative rebels. And then there are two that might get through. One is, uh, or or three maybe. And one, the most important one perhaps, is uh, proposed by Yvette Cooper, uh, former uh, Labour minister. And her proposal is that uh, they would uh, allow time to debate and uh, legislate for a bill which would uh, which would basically mean that if the government was unable to get a deal through Parliament by the 26th of February, then uh, Parliament would insist that the government seeks an extension of the Article 50 negotiating period until the end of this year. So that instead of leaving on the 29th of March, that that date would be deferred until the 31st of December. And, uh, do we know how to cut in, Dennis? But do, do we have any idea what view the European Union might be likely to take us at? Because it would need the the unanimous support of all member states, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. And there's a complication, uh, one obvious complication, which is the European Parliament elections. And so if you were to go for an extension of that length of time, then uh, you'd have to have uh, European elections in Britain and they would have to send MEPs to the European Parliament. And uh, and there's no way around that, I think, that uh, that anybody has suggested, whereas they can probably extend the date up to, say, the beginning of July, which is when the new MEPs take their seats without Britain having to have European Parliament elections. So obviously an extension of that length of time up to the end of, uh, of December is really quite ambitious. But still, uh, there have been uh, mixed signals coming out of Brussels, but certainly they haven't been overwhelmingly negative about the idea of a lengthy extension, if that's what it takes to either have a second referendum or to get a deal sorted out or maybe to have a general election or something, to, to have something that, that breaks the deadlock. 
And obviously, you know, as long as you're deferring the thing, you're also maintaining the status quo and you're avoiding all the disruption of a hard Brexit. There's one more uh, uh, amendment, which is an interesting one, which is proposed by the former Conservative Attorney General, Dominic Grieve. And what that would do would be that it would, on two days in February and then four days in March, it would uh, suspend the standing orders of the House of Commons so that uh, which so that backbench MPs or MPs who are not the government would be able to uh, timetable legislation and timetable votes. And what this really would mean would be that uh, as you're approaching the date of departure, that uh, MPs would be able to propose measures which either would mean saying no to a, a hard Brexit or coming up maybe with some kind of softer Brexit or finding something that would command a majority in the House of Commons and really bypassing the government and taking the initiative away from government. The government is very unhappy about that one particularly. Uh, it uh, also says that it's going to, uh, that it's inclined to whip against the Yvette Cooper's amendment, but Yvette Cooper's amendment, which would uh, allow Parliament to defer the departure date, that has got the support of a lot of concerns Conservative MPs. And, uh, and there are some ministers in the government who've said that they would like to vote for it. And so they would like uh, the government to give a free vote. At the moment, the government doesn't seem inclined to do so. But we'll see what happens next week when it comes up. And there has even been some speculation, hasn't there, of possible cabinet resignations if, if um, MPs are not allowed, uh, are not given these options? Yes, there's a big group of uh, ministers uh, who are, they just believe that no deal, no deal Brexit is an unthinkable option and that it has to be ruled out because the uncertainty is already affecting investment decisions. And these are people for whom uh, the economy is the priority. And so what they want is to ensure that whatever happens, that Britain doesn't crash out of the European Union without a deal on the 29th of March. And many of them are prepared and they've, some of them have said publicly that they would resign from any government that was pursuing a no-deal Brexit. Uh, but some of them are suggesting privately that they would resign so that they would be able to to vote for this uh, this amendment next week. Uh, so, so there certainly is that. The, the, the other uh, joker in the pack of all of this is that uh, there's a, a lot of speculation in the last few days among Conservative MPs about the idea of a general election. And uh, the rationale for this is not so much that Theresa May is is looking forward to an opportunity to face the voters again, or indeed that that the Conservative Party is particularly keen to go into another election under her leadership, but that uh, the situation might become just impossible because if you rule out a no-deal Brexit and if uh, there doesn't appear at the moment to be support in the House of Commons for a second referendum, and certainly Theresa May doesn't want a second referendum, and if she can't get her deal through the House of Commons, and if she can't get any other kind of deal through the House of Commons, then really you need a different House of Commons. And you, uh, you know, so for example, you might come back with a government that wasn't relying on the DUP for its majority. Uh, obviously, there's a danger for the Conservatives that you would come back uh, with a government that doesn't involve them. And, uh, and they're, uh, but they're feeling quite a little bit more confident than they were about their chances of defeating Jeremy Corbyn because they feel as if uh, his star has somewhat waned in recent weeks, partly because of Brexit and the fact that he finds himself at odds with most Labour supporters and most Labour voters, but particularly uh, those young Labour activists that were the base of his support. They uh, they want a second referendum. They want to remain in the European Union, and he doesn't want uh, to overturn the result of the referendum. So they sort of think that maybe they'd be able to. And that's also one reason why 
they want to keep the Conservative Party together on Brexit. She's very wary of making any kind of move on Brexit just now, which would split her party in half, because uh, she thinks that if they were to go into uh, an election uh, on some sort of formal uh, manifesto saying that they wanted uh, the withdrawal agreement, but with uh, changes to the backstop, that most Conservative MPs could support that manifesto and others would simply make their own election address saying, actually, I want a second referendum or I want a no-deal Brexit or whatever it is they want, but still that they'd be able to get into um, the election without actually tearing each other apart or trying to deselect one another. And uh, But it's a very risky option because they, you know, the electoral map after last year's election is not good for the Conservatives. A lot of uh, seats that used to be safe seats are now marginals. An awful lot of Labour seats that were marginals are now safe seats. So, so they would be going in at some disadvantage. But there isn't a growing feeling at Westminster that this can't continue as it is. This government isn't really functioning. And it takes so little to block legislation. And the DUP are capricious partners in this uh, you know, uh, confidence and supply agreement. And so, uh, you know, it's just that uh, it, it's it's becoming increasingly clear that at some stage, whether before or after Brexit, uh, at some stage fairly soon, something has to change. And Dennis, just just briefly in terms of the immediate next steps, um, there's a vote next uh, Tuesday, January 29th, on on the latest proposals, if you like. Is that the definitive vote, the sort of the next meaningful vote, or does the process continue beyond that? No, it's not a meaningful vote. It's uh, So it's not a rerun or a proxy for the meaningful vote in the way that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, of the kind that we had last week. What it is, it's a neutral motion, uh, as they call it, which is really just that the House notes the Prime Minister's statement on Brexit. But uh, unusually for such a motion, uh, people will, MPs will be able to table amendments. Uh, the ones that I was describing. And so the point is that if some of these amendments are carried, that then would be an instruction to the government, which the government can ignore, but it's nonetheless a powerful political instruction to the government uh, to do something. And, uh, and in terms of the standing orders of the House, uh, if they, for example, say we want the standing orders of the House to be changed uh, so that uh, we can legislate, have time to legislate for some new bill on Brexit, then uh, then the Speaker would change those uh, the standing orders because a majority of MPs would have called for the standing orders to be changed. So that that vote is not so much a kind of up-down vote on any deal the Prime Minister would have, It's just, but it is a vote when they will be able to make changes to the way in which the uh, the Brexit process happens, and particularly to rule out a no-deal Brexit on March the 29th. Dennis, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. That was our London editor, Dennis Staunton. 56 years ago today, Tuesday, the French and German leaders, Charles de Gaulle and Conrad Adenauer, met at the presidential palace in Paris to sign the Elysee Treaty, a pact that stands to this day as a symbol of French and German reconciliation following the devastation of the First and Second World Wars. Today, their successors, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, met in the German border town of Aachen to sign a new treaty designed to deepen cooperation between the two states regarded as the motor of the European integration project. For more on this, Lara Marlow joins me now from Paris. Um, Lara, before we get into the, the symbolic importance of this event today, what's actually in this new treaty between France and Germany? Well, what are its main provisions? Uh, it's, it's all pretty vague. Um, there's a lot about convergence. Uh, it says that the, 
the economy, social models, um, defense policy. It creates three new committees, which is what people always do when they don't know what else to do. Uh, one committee to enhance defense cooperation, another committee to enhance cooperation between border communities, and um, another to uh, a, a sort of com committee of experts to bring the French and German economic philosophies, which are very much at odds with each other, to bring them into greater harmony. Uh, so it's, uh, they're obviously, they're very conscious that they may be antagonizing other members of the EU who see France and Germany as, as a bit domineering within within the Union. And for example, in the, in the uh, introduction to the treaty, the, the words European Union figure in virtually every paragraph. Um, but it, it's a lot of pious wishes. They, they, most of what is in it already exist. Um, for example, there's a lot about consultation and members of the German government attending French cabinet meetings and vice versa. That already happens. I mean, the, the fact is that every time there's an EU summit, uh, Merkel and uh, Macron talk to each other beforehand to coordinate their policies. Uh, but the overall feeling that comes out of it is that this is a tired relationship. It's kind of like a, a very old marriage that's been through some rocky times, and so they're renewing their vows. And that, in essence, is, is what happened today. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, some of the measures that, that already exist. I mean, one that struck me was a mutual defense clause. I mean, and they're mm -hmm. both members of NATO, for example, so it seems kind of superfluous for them to sign a mutual defense clause in another treaty. Well, the way that was explained to me by one of Macron's advisors is that it's like concentric circles and France and Germany are, are the closest to each other. They share borders, so they would come to each other's rescue if need be. And then the European Union is, is a bigger circle. It's also in the EU, um, the Treaty on European Union. Uh, and then beyond the European Union is NATO. So they have, they're sort of protected three times, as it were. But yes, one, one, you're right, Chris, one does wonder what is the point? And that's what a lot of people were asking. And then uh, this treaty sparked a big uh, spate of, of fake news and um, fed by the German extreme right, the French extreme right, and the, extre the, the far left in France as well. So I, I think it's a good lesson to these politicians that when you, maybe if you don't really have something earth-shattering and groundbreaking to do, it's probably better not to do it at all. And if you're going to do it, you better explain it to your people beforehand and, and tell them very carefully what you are doing and why. Because uh, in, in the present state of things with uh, very angry populations um, throughout Europe, they will seize on these things and inflate them and turn them into something that they're not. And and what did the, the, the two leaders concerned, Angela Merkel and, and, and Macron, what did they have to say at the signing ceremony today? Well, Macron talked exactly about that. He talked about all of the, he called them lies that have been said, uh, in particular about uh, Marine Le Pen, the, the French far-right leader, uh, about this treaty. And he said, I'm quoting him exactly, he said, those who forget the value of Franco-German uh, reconciliation render themselves accomplices of the crimes of the past, uh, which is pretty pretty heavy criticism. I mean, he's basically accusing Marine Le Pen of being an accomplice of, of, of the Nazis, if you, or you can read it that way, certainly. Uh, he said, those who caricature or spread lies uh, are hurting our history and our people. Uh, so those, those were fairly strong words by Macron. Um, Angela Merkel said something which I, I thought was kind of curious. She talked about the uh, cooperation on defense 
being the sort of uh, a contribution to a future European army. And I'm not sure that talking about a European army at a time when there is such resistance to further European integration in most EU countries um, is, is really terribly wise politically. I, I was sort of surprised that she did that. But that's what she said. And, and she talked about developing a, quote, um, common military uh, culture and a shared arms industry. The treaty does say specifically that they will try to coordinate their, their policy in arms exports. And <coughs> you can read this as, um, how should I say, the, the Franco-British defense cooperation is actually highly developed, uh, much under the Lancaster House Accords. Um, France and Britain have done a lot together in defense. They both are nuclear powers. They both have, they, they were going to build an aircraft carrier together, um, but they've done a, a lot of nuts and bolts defense cooperation, which is much more than the French and the Germans have done. And you almost have the impression reading this treaty that they're trying to make us forget that the British are actually really, really involved uh, with the French in defense because the British are leaving and it's all a bit embarrassing, isn't it? And, and given then, Lara, that the measures in the treaty itself don't seem to amount to, to an awful lot, does, does that represent a failure to agree on something more significant or are we missing yes. this? Is there a symbolic importance to the event that, that outstrips the actual content of the treaty? Well, the, the symbolism, I suppose, is saying that, okay, we don't agree on, on the nuts and bolts, brass tacks things, but there is nothing that can separate us again. Our, our friendship is uh, is permanent and, and uh, will not be shaken. That That's the symbolism. Uh, but you're right, Chris, it's it's very weak. On, there's no big project in it. There's, no, no, there's nothing symbolic and, and large. I mean, they talk about a digital platform that will be set up by French and, and German television networks, and it will be bilingual. There's a lot of bilingualism, but there has been that ever since... Uh, the last 56 years since the Treaty of the Elysee, uh, and, and this is not really going to excite people. And, and, and then it was twisted into uh, Marine Le Pen saying that they were making German the language of Alsace-Lorraine, uh, which is not what they've said, is, is not becoming the official language. They're just trying to ensure, encourage young people to learn each other's language. Um, it, 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 when you do something this vague and this open, it really lends itself to misinterpretation. And is there a connection, Laura, do you think, between, if you like, the weakness of this treaty and the weakness of the two leaders concerned? Because when, when Emmanuel Macron first broached this idea of a treaty in 2017, mm -hmm. the political landscape for him and, and Merkel at that time was very different, wasn't it, from what it is today? Absolutely. Um, and since then, of course, uh, Macron has had the Benalla affair about his, his bodyguard who beat up protesters. He had, he's had several cabinet ministers resign. And then the Gilets jaunes revolt, which really weakened him. So he's a lot less credible on, on the European scene. And Merkel, of course, uh, had a terrible time forming her government last year. She has resigned as leader of the CDU. She's no longer leader of her own party. And she has to leave at the very latest... Uh, by the autumn of, of 2021, but a lot of people think she might leave sooner. In fact, there were um, that both leaders were booed outside the town hall when they entered this morning. Uh, and the forgive my German accent, but the, the German protesters were shouting Merkel muss weg, which I believe means Merkel must leave. And there were also protesters shouting in French Macron démission, Macron resignation. 
So there were um, calls for both of them to, to get out, to leave power. And this is, they're both under huge pressure domestically and internationally within Europe from, from people like Matteo Salvini, the uh, Italian um, uh, interior minister, the, the sort of strongman of the, uh, the leader of the, Le the League. Uh, and he says, he, he says literally, I want to overthrow the Franco-German axis. So there is resentment among these new populist leaders in Europe of this Franco-German leadership, which was always taken for granted until now. And, and notwithstanding all of that, and I suppose that's quite a negative picture, really. But is, is there a sense among supporters of the European project that the German-French, sorry, the German-French alliance at the heart of it has never been more important than it is now? I'm talking about the rise of you know populist parties in in France and Germany and and, and elsewhere. Brexit and all of that going on. I mean, some people are looking aren't they, to France and Germany to give some leadership to, to kind of lead Europe out of this, I won't say crisis, but out of the difficulties it's in today. Yeah, that, that's true, Chris, that it's never been more important because they are the alternative um, to the, this, this new wave of, of populism and nationalism. But at the same time, as we've just said, both, both leaders are weakened. And I think that in the past, France and Germany, if they wanted something to happen in the EU, they could make it happen. If, the, if you had a French leader and a German leader working together, trying together to do something, it happened. And now that is no longer a guarantee of, of success. And furthermore, we, we spoke a few minutes ago about profound disagreements. Um, I mentioned the different attitudes towards economic policy with the French always very keen on stimulus and Macron's uh, two pet projects are... Uh, further integration of the Eurozone. He wants a budget for the Eurozone and he also wants to tax the internet giants. And the Germans kept saying, and, and Merkel has been saying it all along ever since his Sorbonne speech, yes, yes, this is very interesting. We're going to cooperate. We're going to help. And then nothing happens. Uh, so, so there's always a sort of head nodding and, and yes, 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 Emmanuel, we're, we're with you. But it, it just doesn't happen. They, they, they drag their feet and want more meetings and more studies and this sort of thing. And on, on the other hand, the Germans want things. Um, they want reforms in France. Uh, Macron started off very well. He reformed the labor code. He reformed the railway company. But um, there are a lot of outstanding reforms like uh, the retirement system, pension system, which is hugely expensive, social security, um, unemployment insurance. Uh, the French unemployed people enjoy the, the most generous benefits in the world, but France can't afford all this. And the Germans are saying, you know, if you want closer coordination, convergence, the treaty talks a lot about convergence between our economies, you, you've got to slim yours down. You, you, you've got to do these reforms first. Uh, and now Macron, because of the Gilets jaunes, he's, he's just pledged 10 billion euro uh, to increase purchasing power in France. So he's, I think these reforms are, if not dead in the water, certainly uh, postponed for a long time. So there is a profound difference in, in points of view. And you wonder how France and Germany, aside from, I mean, the main goal at the moment, I think, is to hold back this, this wave of populism and, and the uh, European um, elections, the elections for the European Parliament at the end of May are the big test of their ability to do that. Okay, Laura, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.